Chapter thirty one of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Chapter thirty one. Edward did not notice the strained relationship between Mrs. Marston and Hazel. He supposed that his mother's suspicions had faded before Hazel's frank presence. Outwardly, there was little change in the bearings of the two women. It was only in feminine pinpricks and things implied that Mrs. Marston showed her anger and Hazel her dislike. And it was when he was out that Martha spoke so repeatedly and emphatically of being respectable. His coming into the house brought an armoured peace, but no sooner was he outside the door than the guns were unmasked again. Hazel wished more and more that she had stayed at Undern. She found a man's roughness preferable to women's velvet slaps, his most masterful demands less wearing than their silent criticism. At Undern she could not call her physical self her own. Here her heart and mind were attacked. She could not explain to Mrs. Marston that something had made her go. Mrs. Marston would simply have said, Fiddlesticks! She could not explain that Reddin's touch drugged her. If Mrs. Marston had ever been made to feel that madness of passivity, which seemed impossible, so that Edward's existence was a paradox, she had long since forgotten it. Besides, Hazel had no words in which to express these things. She was not even clear about them herself. She never tried to explain anything to Edward. She dreaded his anger, and she felt that only by complete silence could she keep the look of loving reverence in his eyes. She understood how very differently Reddin looked at her. It did not matter with him. But Edward, it was everything to her in Edward. Only once there had been a keen look of criticism in Edward's eyes, and her heart had fluttered. Edward said, "'Why, when you were dragged to Undern against your will, did you wear the man's gown? It wasn't dignified. And why did you cry out on him not to shame you? He could not shame you. You'd done nothing wrong.' "'He said such awful things, Edward, and the dress—' The dress was so pretty. You poor child, you dear little one. So it was a pretty colour, was it? Ah, you shall have one like it. He went off whistling. It was when she had been back nearly six weeks, and the August days were scorching the mountain, that the strain became unbearable. She was not feeling well. Reddin had made no sign. This had at first calmed her, then piqued her. Now it hurt her. Mysteriously she felt that she must be with him. "'He'm that proud. He'd ne'er ask me to go back, and if I went there'd be no peace. Oh, Jack Reddin! Jack Reddin, you've put a spell on me. There in a much peace days, nor much rest nights in your dark house, and yet—' Yet whenever she went for a walk— she felt her feet taking her towards Undern. Then, quite suddenly, one morning, Reddin rode past the house. Mrs. Marston saw him. "'Edward must know of this,' she said, very much flustered. "'You ought to go away somewhere, Hazel.' "'Away? Why ever? Out of temptation. Why not to your aunt's?' 
Aunt Pride wouldna have me, and Ed'ard wouldna like me to go. Edward, I am sure, thinks as I do. Gospel, do not be irreverent. I dunna think you know what Edward thinks as well as me. Don't say dunna, Hazel. Of course I know what Edward thinks a great deal better than you. I've known him all his life. Afterwards, when Mrs. Marston was not in the room, Martha said to her in contemptuous tones, I suppose you know, Mrs. Edward, how he's going on. Who? Why, that Mr. Reddin. What's he done? Oh, I know. But I wouldn't saw me mouth, only I'm thinking you'd ought to know. She looked triumphant. He's after that there Sally something as lives nearby. They do say as all her brats be his. Mr. Reddin's? Is he, like, married to her, Martha? About as much as he was to you, I reckon. And does she live there now? I dunno. Is she pretty? I inna allers thinkin the prettiest as gets lovers. But is she prettier than me? I've heard she's bigger and finer. But she hanna got auburn hair. How should I know? This was desolate news to Hazel, for Reddin, now that she was going to bear his child, had become necessary to her. She was unconscious of the reason of this need, not a spiritual one, but purely physiological. She did not hate him for this news. Such hatred is abnormal. Nor did she love him. That would have been still more abnormal. But she must be in his house. She must sew for him, share his daily doings, sleep in the big four-poster and not in the small virginal bed at the mountain. It would be grievous to leave Edward. He was the shelter between her flickering spirit and the storms of life. She had hesitated, putting off the inevitable, feeling that Undern was always there, like an empty room, for her re-entry, so she'd not hurried. Now the room was occupied, her place taken. Immediately she felt that she must go. Feverishly, she decided to go this very night and peer in. No one but herself had ever drawn the blinds at Undern of late years and see for herself. Mrs. Marston and Martha both seemed to be pushing her over the brink. When, after tea, she crept from the house, she was crying, crying at leaving Edward, the master and the comrade of her unknown self. It was as if she gave up immortality. Yet she was relieved to be going, that is, if she could stay at Undern. Both her tears and her relief were natural. The pity was that body and soul had been put in opposition by belonging to different men. She left a little blotted note for Edward. Dunna think too bad o' me, Edward. I be bound to go to Undern and live. I'd liefer bide along of you. She went through the shadow-sweet meadows where birds hopped out across green stretches in the cool, the high corn that had once been her comrade, the honeysuckle hedges that used to bring so childish a glee. They wore an air of things estranged and critical, 
all was so sad, like a dear friend with an altered countenance. She was an exile, even in the seeing and hearing. It was strange to her as a town under the tides. There it was, clear and belfried as of old, but fathoms deep, and the bells had so faint a chime that Reddin's voice drowned them. She was turned out of the Eden of the past that she had known in wood and meadow. She was denied the Eden of the future that she might have had in Edward's love. She had the present, Reddin, unless the other woman had robbed her of him also. She sat down in the heavy shadows of the trees at the far side of Undern Pool. The water looked cool and ghastly even on this golden day. She watched the wagtails strut magisterially, the moorhens with the worried air of overworked charwomen, all the mysterious evening life of a summer pool, but she had no smile for them today. The swallows slid and circled across the water. Their silence was no longer intimate, but alien. She looked across at Undern. There were roses everywhere, but the house had so strong a faculty for imposing its personality that it gave to the red roses and the masses of travellers' joy that frothed over it a deep sadness, as if they had blown and dropped long since, and were but memoried flowers. The shadows of swallows came and went on the white western wall, and smoke stood up, blue and straight, from Vezin's kitchen fire. She watched the cows go down the green lane, and the shadows go over the meadows in triumphal state. When all was shadow, and the sky was as suddenly vacant of swallows as at dawn it had been full of them, she went stealthily towards the house. A light appeared in the parlour. She came close up and looked in. Reddin was in the easy chair, reading the paper, a pipe in the corner of his mouth. No one else was there. "'Jack Reddin,' she said. "'Hello,' he turned. "'So you've come. I thought you'd have come long ago.' That was all he said, but she assured herself that he was glad she'd come, because he shouted to Vezins for tea. She was certain he was glad to see her, yet there was something vaguely insolent in his manner. He was a man who must never be sure of a woman. The moment she committed herself for him and was at a disadvantage, he despised her. "'Come over here,' he said. "'There, I suppose you've forgotten what it's like to be kissed, eh? And to live with a man. You can never go away again now. Why?' "'Well, you are a simpleton. Do you think he'd have you back after this? "'The first time it was my fault, he thinks, but the second it won't wash.' He laughed. "'This time's your fault as much as the other. You made me come both times. "'There's Vezins. Let me get up.' "'No, why should I?' Vezins entered. "'This here game of tetherball,' he said, "'fair makes me giddy.' "'Jack,' said Hazel, when he'd gone, "'Martha said there was a woman here.' "'Martha's a liar. "'Hannah there been?' "'No, never anyone but you.' "'Hannah, you been fond of anyone?' "'Only you.' 
she said there was a woman as had a lot of little children as was yours. Damn her! And I thought she's ought to live along of you and to be married like and wear the green dress. No one shall wear that but you, nor have my children but you. She was, as he had calculated, entirely overwhelmed, and so startled that she forgot to question him any more. Oh, no, she said, that'll never be. He raised his eyebrows at her extraordinary denseness, but he judged it best to say no more. He must get rid of Sally. He supposed she would make him pay heavily. He was sick of the sight of her and the children. They were not nice children. He looked at Hazel contemplatively. If his conjecture was right, he would have to try and legalise things during the next few months. He badly wanted a son born in wedlock. He would have to go and beg the parson to divorce her. It would be detestable, but it would have to be done. He would wait and see. Meanwhile, Vesens also made plans, his obstinate mouth and pear-shaped face more dour than ever. Hazel had a letter from Edward in the morning. It was very short. She could not tell what he thought of her. He only said that if she ever wanted help, she was to come to him. She cried over it and hid it away. She knew how well Edward would have looked as he wrote it. She knew he would be grieved. She had not the slightest idea that he would be utterly overwhelmed and wrecked. She had not the least notion how he felt for her. She was very glad to be away from Mrs. Marston and Martha. She found this household of two men a great rest after the two women, although Vesence did not relax his disapproval. If it had not been for her passionate spiritual longing for Edward, she would have been happy, for the deep law of her being was now fulfilled in thus returning to Redden. He, for his part, liked to see her about. Roses appeared in the rooms. It was strange to him, who had never had a woman in his house, to find his bedroom scented with flowers. He liked to watch her doing her hair. He always pretended to be asleep in the morning so that she should get up first, shyly anxious to be dressed before he awoke. So, morning after morning, he would watch her through his eyelashes. He never felt that, as she obviously wished for privacy, he was mean or indelicate. I've got a right to, she's mine, was his idea. It was not till a week after Hazel's coming that Reddin pulled himself together and went to interview Sally Haggard. Vesens, observing the fact, repaired to Sally's cottage on his master's return, and found her in tears. To see this heavy-browed, big-boned woman crying so startled him that he contemplated her in silence. "'Well, fool, can't you speak?' she said. "'I dare say now as he wants you to move on,' queried Vesens. "'Ah!' "'Because of his other young woman he's brought.' "'Ah, what's the good of mouth in it? "'I been faithful to him. "'I hanna gone with others. "'All the chillin's his'n, "'and never come near me, didna when my time come. "'Now it's go!' "'She broke out crying again. "'What I come for was to show you a way to make her go. 
If I tell you, you men swear never to come and live at Undern. Struth, I will. Well, then, just you come and see her some time when the master's away and bring the chillin. Thank you kindly. Not till I say the word, though. I wanna risk it till he's off for the day. If he found me out, it'd be notice. Eh, missus, he's like a lad with his first white mouse. And the parson, laws, they'm two thrustles wi' one worm. No mistake. And yet she's only a bit of a thing, you tell me? Ah, but she'm all on wires, to and again like a can-bottle. Why canna she bide with the minister? Lord only knows. It's for her good and for the maester's and yours. Not to speak of mine. It's where it, where it all the while, missus, and the fingers in the tea-caddy all the day long. It's Andrew this and Andrew that, and a terrible strong smell of flowers. Enough for a burying. Vesens waited eagerly for his opportunity, but Reddin was afraid to leave Hazel alone in case she might see Sally. So September came and drew out its shining span of days, and still Vesens and Sally were waiting. End of chapter 31. Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK.